0: Hello, I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books Network. On today's podcast, we'll hear from Dee, Dee Guttenplan, author of The Nation, a Biography, The First 150 Years. The book is about America's oldest weekly magazine and the editors who guided it. Editors such as the present one, Katrina Vanden who says the nation has survived for so long, not because it makes a
1: lot of money, but because it has always served as a political and cultural forum. It's a magazine for voices which might otherwise be marginalized. It's for rebellious voices, for dissidents. Hello, I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books
0: Network. On today's podcast, we'll hear from Dee, Dee Guttenplan, author of The Nation, a Biography, The First 150 Years. The book is about America's oldest weekly magazine and the editors who guided it. Editors such as the present one, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who says the nation has survived for so long, not because it makes a lot of money, but because it has always served as a
1: political and cultural forum it's a magazine for voices which might otherwise be marginalized it's a v- for rebellious voices for dissident voices for writers voices for it's also because its supporters over the years have cared more for what it stood for than what it made it's become it's about it being a cause a community as much as a publication and i think it's that ongoing dialogue in the pages between radicals liberals progressives even conservatives with a conscience that gives it a value that transcends and we have resisted—you know, in 1996, The Nation did a series called The National Entertainment State, and it was about the threat conglomeratization, consolidation of the media, Murdochization posed to freedom of the press. That continues today. We've been at the forefront of the fight for Internet democracy. So I think fighting for independence and never giving up on a fight uh, is part of why The Nation has survived.
0: That's the voice of Nation editor Katrina Vandenhuvel speaking on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Dee Guttenplan's book on the Nation recounts the history of the magazine from its founding in 1865, months after the end of the Civil War, to the present, as it confronts the challenges of the digital age and the national security state. Dee Guttenplan currently writes for the Nation from its bureau in London, England. He's a former columnist and reporter for New York Newsday and senior editor at the Village Voice. He's also the author of two previous books, The Holocaust on Trial, about a libel suit launched by a British Holocaust denier, and the prize-winning biography American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone. The Nation, a biography, was published to mark the magazine's 150th birthday on July 6th. We reach D.D. D. Guttenplan at the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Brattleboro, Vermont. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce
2: Wark.
3: Hi, Don. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, Bruce. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
3: Now, I'll start with a general question um, about the nation itself. How would you describe the magazine to someone who has never read it as it celebrates a century and a half of publication?
2: Well, you can use two very short descriptions, both of which are true. Normally, I say the nation is a left-of-center American weekly. I put it that way because uh, for the last 20 years, I've been half of the nation's London Bureau, so I'm used to talking to people who've never heard of the nation, and uh, that's what I usually say. The other way to describe it is America's oldest weekly, and both of those are true.
3: And what would you say about the contents of it? If, if it's politically left, um, what does the magazine typically contain in, a, in an issue?
2: A typical issue will have, um, in fact, The Nation was one of the first places to do this, a front of the book, which is devoted to political debate, commentary on recent developments, both nationally and internationally, and editorials, and then a back of the book, which is devoted to uh, reviews and essays about books, culture, the arts, music uh, you know and all manner of not necessarily political productions, so it's both political and cultural it is although um you know the the idea that there's a a neat split between politics and culture is something that i've always opposed um, in My second book, which was uh, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, I was writing about the Popular Front, and I I said that the Popular Front was like a stream, and politics was one bank of the stream, and culture was the other bank, but the Popular Front was the stream itself. And I think there's a way in which uh, the nation has always had a lot of sympathy for the view that you can't draw a neat line between politics and culture.
3: And how would you, um, say, say looking at the cultural back of the book material, how would politics infuse that?
2: Well, I, varying ways in varying times. I mean, in the very first issue of The Nation, uh, which, by the way, was founded by radical abolitionists in 1865. So the first issue came out in July 1865, and it was essentially founded to bridge a schism in the American abolitionist movement between the followers of Wendell Phillips and the followers of William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison, of course, was the editor of The Liberator. And uh, he basically said that now that the Civil War had been fought and won and the slaves had been freed, the cause of abolitionism had been fulfilled and it was time to fold up their tents and move on to other causes. And uh, Phillips said this was not so because there was still vast uh, racial inequality in the United States and the government needed to be vigilant to guarantee the rights of the freedmen. And the nation was founded by people who had friends, sympathizers, allies in both groups, and it was meant to be a forum for debate between both groups and also to function precisely as a kind of watchdog over how well the government was doing in guaranteeing uh, and delivering the rights it had recently promised the freed slaves. So in a sense, everybody who wrote for The Nation from in the beginning had a certain political outlook. Uh, but in the first issue, you had both Henry James Sr. and his young son, the novelist Henry James Jr., who was not yet a novelist and who in fact became a novelist based on the independence that writing regularly for The Nation gave him. That was his first regular income.
3: And just out of curiosity, what was Henry James
2: Jr. writing about in that first issue? Uh, I don't remember what he wrote about in the very first issue, but uh, he was reviewing novels, plays. He he was a very harsh critic of a young poet named Walt Whitman. He didn't really care for Whitman's demotic tone at the time.
3: Right. A little,
2: bit, <laughs> a little bit too unbuttoned for Henry James's James. I, I
3: guess so. Um now I do want to ask you about that first issue because um well it contained the prospectus they published the prospectus for the magazine and I'm wondering what you think that prospectus tells us about the nation's main founding
2: principles Well the first the first object of the nation according to that prospectus was that there would be discussion of the topics of the day and it said and above all of legal economical and constitutional questions with greater accuracy and moderation that are now to be found in the daily press. Um, And the second principle was the maintenance and diffusion of true democratic principles in society and government. And the third object was the earnest and persistent consideration of the condition of the laboring class in the South, and that meant the freed slaves. So those were the three main concerns from the beginning. But it's interesting because... That prospectus was from 1865, and it was written by Frederick Law Olmsted, who's better known probably to listeners as the architect of Central Park or, Pro- or Prospect Park in Brooklyn or the Emerald Necklace in Boston or many other parks throughout the United States. Uh, and um, a journalist, an Anglo-Irish journalist named E.L. Godkin, who was the first editor of the nation, this had been a project of Olmsted since 1863. And we recently ran an excerpt from the 1863 prospectus that Olmsted wrote himself. And in the 1863 prospectus, Olmsted wrote this. He said that the problem with the daily press is, that, is the way in which it treats the questions of the day is necessarily imperfect, slipshod, and inaccurate, if for, no, for no other reason than the mere want of time each topic has to be handled on the very day in which it comes up, and let the writer who takes hold of it be ever so conscientious or painstaking he's compelled to dispose of it by the aid of such knowledge as he happens to command at the moment, and in most cases, with the aid of scarcely any reflection. Now, what's interesting about that is that aside from the slight floweriness of the language, that could be a complaint about relying on the Internet for your news. I mean, what Olmsted was doing was setting out essentially the case for a journal of opinion or a weekly journal. In other words, something, something that was slightly apart from the hurly-burly of what he saw as the Daily Press in 1863, which, of course, has only become a louder cacophony in 2015. Excerpt
0: from The Nation's Prospectus, published July 6, 1865. The nation will not be the organ of any party, sect, or body. It will, on the contrary, make an earnest effort to bring to the discussion of political and social question a really critical spirit and to wage war upon the vices of violence, exaggeration, and misrepresentation by which so much of the political writing of the day is marred. The criticism of books and works of art will form one of its most prominent features, and pains will be taken to have this task performed in every case by writers possessing special qualifications for
3: it. Yes, there's an excerpt from that very first issue, The Prospectus of July sixth, 1865. And, and Don Guttenplan, uh, you mentioned earlier in the interview that the nation grew out of the movement to abolish slavery in the U.S., but I was very surprised to read in your book that... Uh, uh, well, what you call painful reading today, the, the way the nation backed away from supporting full voting rights for African Americans. How did that happen?
2: Well, it was, painful. it was painful for me to realize it. it was one of the big surprises for me when I started researching my book. Uh, and essentially what happened is the nation was, as I said, the voice of radical republicanism. So those were the people who wanted to in, impeach Andrew Johnson. Uh, And those were the people who were most vociferous in guaranteeing the rights of the freed slaves and who, as the nation wrote in 1865, said that if the rights of the freed slaves had to be guaranteed at the point of a bayonet, then they needed bayonets in the South. So essentially uh, what happened is from 1865 to 1870, there was a huge controversy in the United States over how much priority to give racial justice and how much priority to give other causes. And during that period, the nation which began as the voice of radical republicanism essentially became the house organ of the Republican Party. Now, of course, in those days, the Republican Party was very concerned with rights for freed slaves, but it was also concerned with other things. It was concerned with the tariff and lowering of tariff barriers. It was concerned with industrialization. It was the voice of... of essentially factory owners and employers. And while those people resented the competition that, f- that slaves and slavery posed to their own political power, they were also becoming increasingly concerned at the growing challenge posed by organized labor. So essentially what happened is that the, the, the nation's political or la- racial liberalism was overcome by its what you would call economic liberalism in the 19th century sense, which meant free trade and very little government involvement in the economy and a resistance to any form of combined interest in the economy, particularly on the part of organized workers. So that it was, it was the economic questions and the growing economic might of the workers Throughout the 1870s and the 1880s, that pushed the nation progressively further and further to the right, and one of the first signs of that was its its abandonment of African Americans. But in a way, the sort of nadir of that period was in 1886 during the Haymarket uh, riots, where in, in Chicago there were these there was a, a demonstration for an eight-hour workday and there was violence at the demonstration, and bombs were thrown, and people died. And although they, the police never caught the actual bomb throwers, they did arrest and try anarchists who'd advocated for an eight-hour day and who'd organized the demonstration, and several of them were hanged. But they were not hanged fast enough for the nation, which basically said that the way to cure this outbreak of what it called anarchy, which was essentially a worker organization in the United States, was with uh with the gallows now you mentioned earlier you mentioned the first
3: founding editor e l godkin, and um I have an an excerpt here from an uh, i suppose it would have been an editorial that he wrote. And it's called, uh, Who are the Friends of Negro Suffrage? And I I think it it kind of captures, you quote it in your book as well, it kind of captures the nation's um, attitude toward uh, the freed slaves and voting rights.
0: Excerpt from a Nation editorial by editor E.L. Godkin, published January 25, 1877, under the headline, Who are the Friends of Negro Suffrage? The editorial opens by suggesting that African-Americans are too ignorant to vote intelligently and wisely. It will soon be ten years since the nation took the venturous step of conferring on the Negro the right of suffrage without any restriction as to his intelligence or to his personal interest in a wise administration of the government. Among the supporters of the measure were many who acted more from the pressure of a real or supposed political necessity than from the conviction that the newly enfranchised race was really well-fitted to make a good use of the right conferred upon it.
3: So that was an excerpt from an editorial written by uh, E.L. Godkin, the nation's founding editor, on January 25, 1877. Uh, Don Guttenplan... You've mentioned uh, in earlier in the interview how the, the nation backed away from radical causes and became a kind of organ of the Republican establishment, the industrialists who feared organized labor and so on. And yet, um, after a while, the nation did return to its more radical roots. It gradually regained its outsider status. How did that happen?
2: Well, the most significant person in that transformation was a man called Oswald Garrison Villard. Now, Villard's father was a German immigrant named Henry Villard, who'd come to the United States as part of the, the 48ers. These were the people who had taken the, the progressive side in 1848 in, a, in an attempt to have a revolution in Germany and then had fled the country. And uh, another one of them was Joseph Pulitzer, who went to St. Louis and founded newspapers. But Henry Villard came to the United States and worked as a war correspondent for the New York Tribune and for German-language papers and covered Civil War battles. But then he became involved with a group of German investors who were investing in railroad stocks in the U.S. And he eventually gained control of the Northern Pacific Railroad and um, was a financier. And with the funds from his railroad ventures he bought the New York Post and the Nation. Well, he bought the New York Post... Yeah, he bought the New York Post and the Nation together. And uh, he made Godkin, who was until then the editor of the Nation, the editor of the New York Post. And for about 20 years, the, the Nation became a kind of supplement to the New York Post, uh, whose only real role, original in his only real original contribution... To American discourse at the time was its book review pages and its cultural coverage. It still, be, be, it was still a very important venue for cultural coverage, but politically it became more and more and more reactionary. And in fact, H. L. Mencken said of it during this period that it was the most boring magazine ever published. But his Henry Villard's son, Oswald Garrison Villard, went to Harvard, but then decided that uh, that he wanted to become a journalist. Worked at newspapers and became publisher of the nation and slowly started to exert his own influence and there were two there were two causes that were particularly dear to oswald garrison villard one was women's suffrage his mother helen garrison villard who was the daughter of uh, william lloyd garrison was a women's suffragist and a fighter for for the women's vote and in fact oswald garrison villard marched in women's suffrage parades and then he also became very interested in uh, the cause of what were now the second generation of freed African-Americans. And he was, he was friendly with W.E.B. Du Bois, the great uh, scholar and, and writer. And he was one of the founders with Du Bois of the NAACP. So it was partly Oswald Garrison-Villard's sympathy for these two groups, uh, women and African-Americans, and partly his own experience as a pacifist during World War I and being outlawed by the federal government, the nation was briefly banned from the mails that radicalized him. And through that, the magazine slowly turned left. Yeah, you you
3: write that of all the causes, we've been talking about how the nation has gone back and forth on some things, abandoning the freed slaves, voting rights and that sort of thing, but the one consistent theme in the nation that uh, carries on to this day and has always been there has been its anti-imperialism, and what examples could you give of that from the earlier pages of The Nation and then from the later ones?
2: Well, even from E.L. Godkin's day, so there was a movement right after World, right after the Civil War. There was a, a movement to annex Cuba, and there were various what were called filibusters, which were American military men who would go into South America or Central America, try to depose the existing government, and then get recognized by Washington, which would, of course, mean that they and their friends would be in charge of the whole country, and they could make a fortune. Now... These were not successful, but uh, the nation was always suspicious of them and always opposed to them. And the first one that really gained any significant traction is, is hardly remembered today, but that was the acquisition of Hawaii. And what happened is essentially a group of American freebooters landed in Hawaii, deposed the existing queen, and took over and then sought to be, sought to be annexed by the United States. And... Um, E.L. Godkin opposed this. The nation opposed this. Theodore Roosevelt was very much in favor of this because he was very much in favor of America's empire and expanding. The reason the nation opposed Hawaiian annexation and various other 19th century imperial ventures like annexing Cuba, seizing the Philippines, uh, was because, not because, I mean, it was probably on principle, but it was really because they felt that being a democracy was in incompatible with having an empire, and that if America had an empire, eventually that would corrupt our democracy. And so the nation opposed the annexation of Cuba, it opposed the annexation of Hawaii, it opposed conquering the Philippines. When America sent troops to Haiti in 1915, so we've just marked the 50th anniversary of that intervention, the nation sent a reporter down who essentially said that this isn't about democracy. This is about First National Citibank and their investments in Haiti and the American government moving to secure those investments. And, you know, in our, in our own day, obviously, the nation was very critical from very early on of the Vietnam War. It opposed the war in Iraq. We continue to oppose military intervention in Syria. So it's, a, it's as, I, as I wrote in the book, it's the one issue on which the nation has never wavered.
0: Excerpt from a Nation Editorial on Hawaiian Annexation, published November 25, 1897. The feature of the proposed annexation of Hawaii, which ought to excite the most comment and the greatest repugnance, has received scarcely any attention, and among the advocates of annexation, none at all. This is the fact that the American Republic, based upon the doctrine that all governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, proposes to change the government of a distant country without asking the consent of the governed in any way whatever. Does this betoken a change in ourselves? So it would seem, for when we were negotiating for the acquisition of the Danish West Indies 30 years ago, the terms of the treaty provided expressly for the submission to a vote of the people of the islands, and such a vote was taken before the question of ratification was considered by the Senate of the United States. If we act differently now, the reason must be some change has come over us in respect of the most fundamental principle of our institutions.
3: Uh, Don Guttenplan, your book, The Nation of Biography, is uh, organized around the time periods of various legendary editors of the nation, and one of those was uh, Frida Um Where did she come from, and what was her contribution to the nation?
2: I'm so glad you asked me that because Frida Kershway is kind of my hero. And she, she came out of the Upper West Side. Her, her father was the dean of the Columbia Law School and she went to Barnard College where she was voted, where she was voted best looking. Uh, and she went to work at the nation almost immediately after graduation. Uh, she had a, a short period working on a daily newspaper in New York and then she went to work at the nation as an assistant to what was called the international relations section, where they would clip articles from the foreign press, translate them into English if need be, and then comment on them. And it was, a, it was a, what you might call an early aggregator, except, of course, it all happened in print and it only happened once a week. And her own politics, uh, her own great first cause was women's suffrage, and she was an early feminist, so after women got the vote, the nation would print articles on changing the changing relationship between men and women. They had a series of groundbreaking, uh, very candid interviews with American prominent American women about their personal lives. So it was about the personal and the political and the connection between those. And she was also an enthusiastic participant in the popular front. And I need to be very clear about that because... One of the slanders against the nation is that it was a Stalinist or a communist organ during the 1930s and the 1940s, and that's completely untrue. But it is true that Frieda Kershwe in the 1930s thought that the most crucial problem facing the world was the rise of Nazism and the rise of fascism in Spain. And it is true that she was willing to work with anybody who was opposed to the Nazis in Germany or the fascists in Spain or Italy. And in terms of Military aid to Spain, as you may recall, the United States, Great Britain, France all had an embargo on sending weapons to the Spanish Republic. Meanwhile, Hitler was bombing in support of Franco. Mussolini was sending troops and materiel to support the fascists. And the only country that was arming Spain and sending equipment and men was the Soviet Union. So that definitely meant that the Soviet Union got at least quite some favorable mentions in the nation during the 1930s. And it's true that when the United States joined World War II and the Soviet Union was our ally, the nation was really enthusiastic about that rather than just holding its nose and pretending to be enthusiastic.
3: You write that uh, Frida Kershway actually ran a very democratic kind of uh, a nation for for writers. Uh, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, I mean two things. One is that the the nation... Uh, the nation has always been very vociferous in defense of freedom of speech, and it 's not that we 've ever pretended to print every shade of opinion in our pages. You know the nation is as firmly on the left as various right wing publications are on the right but uh, one of the things but if there, but if there 's a, de- a genuine debate or a controversy on the left, then the nation would would always print all sides and the the most vil- vivid illustra- the most vivid illustration of that I can think of is during the 1930s and 1940s when Frieda Kershway, who was overall editor of the magazine and in charge of the front of the magazine, its political and, and journalistic coverage, uh, was generally fairly sympathetic to the Soviet Union, although she clearly always identified Stalin as a dictator, not a Democrat. But the back of the magazine, the, the review section, was edited by Margaret Marshall, who was a rabid anti-Stalinist and very vociferously critical of not only Stalin, but the American communist movement, the American communist party. A lot of people who later became stars of magazines like the National Review got got their starts reviewing books in the back of the nation during the 1930s and the 1940s under Margaret Marshall. And so we got complaints from both sides. We got complaints in the Daily Worker, and we got complaints in the Hearst Press. The Daily Worker said that the nation was a a house divided and and much too sympathetic to the enemies of progress. And the Hearst paper said that the nation was much too sympathetic to communists. So basically, Frida Kurzweil was willing to live with dissent against her views in her own pages. And that's one of the reasons why she's my hero.
3: Now, one of the big differences between the nation of uh, the Frida Kershwe days and the nation today is the attitude toward Israel. Um, Kershwe was editing at the time before Israel was founded, and uh, she really pushed hard. Uh, She pushed the Truman administration uh, to support the founding of a Jewish state. Um, How did that play out with the nation
2: well, I think it's, it's worth saying that the nation not only supported the founding of the State of Israel, but that the founding of the State of Israel was one of the nation's great successes in the 1940s. That Frieda Kershway not only supported, she, acted, she was an active campaigner. She lobbied the president. She lobbied Congress. But then that was partly because in the early 1940s, Frida Kershway and nation writers like I.F. Stone had stood almost alone in warning what was happening to the Jews of Europe and begging the Roosevelt administration to do something about it now that begging didn 't get very far until much too late in the war, but it meant that the nation had credibility and also had learned uh, that the rest of the world was not going to protect the Jews of europe and so in a sense, that was the nation 's conversion to Zionism, if you like before. Before World War II, I would say that the nation regarded Zionism the way most Americans and most American Jews indeed thought about it, which was as a kind of niche cause for a few fanatics. But after the Holocaust, the nation became very much a mouthpiece for an advocate of uh, Zionist campaigners. And Frida Kershway herself went to Israel uh, many times. They sent reporters to cover the Israeli War of Independence, and. It was one of the nation's great causes, and it was, in a way, it was interesting because it was just as the nation was becoming politically anathema under McCarthyism, that uh, it retained this core of readers who still were loyal to it because of what it had done and what it had said in during World War II and during the creation of the State of Israel. Now, the nation has, I would say, is still pro-Israel in the sense of thinking, you know, that in the sense of defending. Uh, the right of Jews to have a state and in defending the right of that state to exist insofar as it's challenged. But it's also pro-Palestinian. And to the extent that those things are in conflict, there's been conflict on our pages. I mean, you know, the nation uh, was the journalistic home of my old teacher, Edward Said, who was our music critic and who was probably the greatest voice for Palestinian national aspirations in the United States. Uh, On the other hand, the nation has always been uh, sympathetic to and defensive of Israel's right to exist in secure in security and in peace. So, uh, American Jews, as I'm sure your listeners will know, are very much divided on this question of of how far uh, Israel should be allowed to go and whether and how to reconcile Israel's right to exist with the right of Palestinians to a national a national expression uh, and to have a state and to have a secure life and those debates are still being played out on our pages today. Now, you
3: mentioned the uh, McCarthy period, and and uh, Frida Kershway was still editor uh, from thirty three to 1955 at the time of McCarthy. And then Kerry uh, McWilliams uh, took over as editor in 1955 in a period of the... Cold War, so how would you describe the nation 's stances during the McCarthy period and the Cold War? A very tough period to be a left wing magazine?
2: It was a very tough period, and Carry McWilliams was an incredibly brave editor whose independence I think stemmed partly from the fact that he he came from Colorado uh, and had grown up in Colorado and California, and so he was not a sort of east coast centric person. He did not have a parochially uh, northeast corridor view of what America was or American politics or indeed world politics. And also, uh, he had written—he'd been a journalist covering labor campaigns in the California and San Joaquin Valley. He'd seen incredible violence against, uh, against agricultural workers. He'd written about Mexican-Americans. He was tough. And he was hard to push around, and he was not going to let himself be pushed around by McCarthy. So I would say the the main note of the nation in the 1950s was of defiance and survival. But at the same time, we also printed a lot of articles that made literary as well as journalistic history. I mean, one was Carrie McWilliams sent a file on this motorcycle gang in California called the Hells Angels, to a writer he thought might be interested in this called Hunter Thompson and that was Hunter Thompson's first national breakthrough was in The Nation writing about the Hell's Angels. Uh, He had a walk-in submission from a young graduate of the Harvard Law School uh, called The Safe Car You Can't Buy by Ralph Nader and Carrie McWilliams printed that and launched the consumer rights movement in the United States. And Carrie McWilliams also printed a young scholar of Vietnamese society, a a Frenchman who'd fought with the Free French during World War II called Bernard Fall about what was happening between Vietnam and France in the 1950s, and it meant that the nation was incredibly prescient about uh, what was going to happen if the United States took over from the French in Vietnam. So uh, it's not that McWilliams just kept his head down and kept the magazine going. He kept being... He kept making trouble, he kept making noise, he kept being defiant. He kept the fight for free speech alive, and he refused to be uh, intimidated.
3: I was interested in what you wrote about one method he adopted. Obviously, the nation did not have big budgets for investigative journalism, but uh, Kerry McWilliams kind of invented a way of doing muckraking journalism or investigative journalism fairly well on the cheap. How did he do that?
2: Well, partly it was the way his mind worked, which is that he, like I.F. Like Stone, he was a great reader and a great clipper. So he would have these vast files of clippings that he would read on a topic, which he'd just save up and save up and save up. And whether the topic was city planning or urban renewal or, uh, or corruption in, in national politics. And then he would, he would essentially assemble this big file and send them off to a writer called Fred Cook... Who, was a, who actually wrote for the World Telegram. So he was, a, he was a Hearst newspaper man, but he was a great synthesizer of information. And one of the files he sent to, to Fred Cook was about Alger Hiss. Another file he sent to Fred Cook was about the FBI's abuse of civil liberties. And Cook would then take these files, put it all together, do some of his own reporting, and come out with these amazing
4: pieces. There are many definitions of uh, the profession of journalism.
0: Legendary Nation editor, Kerry McWilliams.
4: And because I have a kind of morbid interest in the subject, I collect these definitions. I now have a, uh, something like 60 definitions. All of them, I'm happy to say, splendidly derogatory. And uh, the one I like best is um, Edwin Leahy's uh, definition, Mr. Leahy being of the Chicago Daily News. Uh, Mr. Leahy says that the essence of journalism is superficiality. Uh, And of course he's quite right, because uh, journalism does deal with the surface of events and the surface uh, of news, and if it weren't uh, dealing with that, it wouldn't be journalism. I suppose it would be history or sociology or something of that sort.
0: You're listening to an interview with D.D. Guttenplan, author of The Nation, a biography, The First 150 Years. As you've been hearing, those years were marked by several legendary editors, including Frida Kirschwe from 1933 to the mid-1950s and Carrie McWilliams from 1955 to the mid-1970s. Then came Victor Navasky. Author D.D. Guttenplan says Victor Navasky brought
2: something new to the nation. Well, what I say in the book is that um is that Victor was not earnest, <laughs> that Carey McWilliams was an incredibly brave man and very serious and a great journalist, but he was also a bit dry. And if you read The Nations from the 1950s, you know, they're terrific documents and it's it's admirable the positions the magazine took and the investigative reporting they did was very important, but they're not a lot of fun to read. And what Victor did is he had a very similar political sensibility. Uh, he was very skeptical of the Cold War, he was very skeptical of American power, but he brought in a sense of humor. He would previously edited a magazine called Monocle, which was a, a, a humorous quarterly that launched the careers of writers like Calvin Trill and, and cartoonists like Ed Sorrell. Uh, and uh, and so one of the things that, that Victor brought to it was irreverence. Another thing that he brought to it was, like Frida Kershwein, he he didn't mind disputation. In fact, he loved having his writers fight with each other. And that made the magazine much livelier. And the third thing he brought was that although uh, Victor, who's still alive and flourishing, thank goodness, uh, is not someone you would call a counterculture person. I mean, he's somebody who likes to drink martinis, not smoke pot. But he's someone who brought the 60s into the magazine, even though... By the time he took over, it was 1975. He embraced radical journalists like Andrew Kopkind and brought them into the magazine. He brought in Katha Pollitt as a columnist. So uh, he was someone who who brought in a whole cohort of younger writers who were, in most cases, more like Christopher Hitchens or Alexander Coburn, more radical than he was. Uh, but he had great enthusiasm for watching them go at it.
3: Now, earlier, you did mention Calvin Trillin, and I think if I remember from your book, he holds the record for the most pieces uh, published by the nation.
2: That's true, although these days, sadly, he's only writing poems for us, so a lot of those pieces are pretty short. But he, he is still writing for us, and he's been writing for us for about 40 years now. I think his first
3: <laughs> piece, you say, um, was devoted to a, a criticism of uh, Victor Navasky.
2: Yes, he called him wily and parsimonious because of what the nation paid him <laughs>
3: <laughs> in the high uh, tens of or in the, or the high two high in the figure. high two figures, is the, in the phrase. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I we, think we've
2: moved on a little from there.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think you say it was actually sixty-five dollars he was paid. Well, whatever it was, it wasn't it wasn't nearly what Calvin deserved. And and you also reprint one of Trillin's poems, the so the shortest piece ever published by the nation. How did that go?
2: So that was O.J. Oyve. I think that probably set the magazine's per word rate record. <laughs>
3: Um, Now, um, let's move on to The Nation today and the present editor, who uh, took over, actually, in 1995. Who is that editor, and what is she bringing to
2: The Nation? She's still in the editor's chair today. So that's Katrina Vanden who, before she became editor of the magazine in 1995, had been a Nation intern, uh, where she had actually been given the job of organizing Carrie McWilliams' papers, So that meant that she was steeped in the history of the magazine. Uh, She'd worked at ABC television, producing an award-winning documentary on the McCarthy period, and then she'd become a regular contributor to the magazine from Moscow, uh, where she and her husband, who was also our Soviet affairs columnist, Professor Stephen Cohen, lived part of each year. And it meant that the nation, thanks to Katrina and Steve, had a ringside seat during the Perestroika period. They were very close to Gorbachev. And it meant that, um, you know, the nation was a very important channel in conveying to the American people that this was a real change that was happening in the Soviet Union, that things genuinely were changing. Uh, What does she bring to the magazine? Well, I I would say uh, critical intelligence, like all of our editors, also great style, Also, again, someone who is comfortable with debate within the left. In other words, The Nation is not a magazine of editorial certainties. It's a magazine of questioning, debate, argument, doubt, and uh, reconsideration. And I think Katrina embodies all of those properties.
3: Yeah, and she also appears on the mainstream uh, talk shows as well.
2: Well, I would say that's a, that's a difference and that's something else that Katrina brings to the magazine is that she's, she's terrific on television and it means that our reach, particularly in, to a digital generation, has grown exponentially in the last 10 years.
3: I was interested in your pointing out in your book that uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel also is quite, um, well, she did an entertainment, uh, uh, an entertainment issue in the 90s in which she looked at big media.
2: Well, she's always been—the uh, issue in the 90s was called the National Entertainment State, and it was basically a look at the extent to which conglomerates were taking over our culture and the effect of that both on journalism, particularly television journalism, television news, and the wider culture. And again, this is, this is something that goes back to the beginning of our conversation, which is the way in which the nation has always been adept— at linking politics and culture and seeing those links even when they're not acknowledged by the wider culture.
0: From an editorial in The Nation of June 3, 1996, Corporate Culture. Pache Marshall McLuhan, no longer is it true that the medium is the message. As our media map and surrounding materials in this special issue on the national entertainment state should make clear, more and more the media omit the message suppress the message, homogenize the message, sensationalize the message, or convert the message into entertainment, or worse, infotainment. And yet, according to a survey released May 13th by the Pew Research Center for the People in the Press, the next generation seems to have received the message after all. The proportion of those under 30 who say they regularly watched network TV news has dropped by more than one-third in the past 12 months. You're listening to an interview with D.D. Guttenplan, author of The Nation, a Biography, The First 150 Years. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark.
3: Yeah, I'm sitting here looking at a list of some of the people who have written for The Nation over the 150 years of its existence. And and you've already mentioned Henry James, but there was Longfellow and uh, E.M. Forrester, Emmer Goldman, Sinclair Lewis, Bertrand Russell, Albert Einstein, I.F. Stone we've mentioned, um, and,
2: and of course, Martin Luther King's role in the nation as well. Uh, Well, that was something else that Kerry McWilliams did that was hugely significant, is he got Martin Luther King to write a sort of of state-of-the-civil-rights-movement report for the magazine every year for five years during the 1960s. And it meant that, uh, first of all, it enabled Dr. King to speak to a much wider audience. Secondly, it it gave him and the movement an additional platform. And it also uh, produced pieces that are still some of the most enduring journalism we've ever published.
3: Your book points out that the nation has survived for a century and a half, and yet it has rarely made very much money.
2: I think technically it made money in three or four out of those 150 years. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, how then did it survive financially? Well, part of it was luck. I mean, one should never underestimate the importance of luck in human affairs in that we had um, adept editors and generous publishers. But I think one of the things that distinguished the nation, particularly recently from, for example, a magazine like The New Republic, is that uh, we didn't have a single owner, So it wasn't a question of, like, there's one rich person and if he gets pissed off, he takes his toys and goes home. It was a magazine that was from Frida Kershway's days, dependent on on subsidy by a, a large number of its readers. So that she started something called the Nation Associates, where people would contribute annually to the magazine on top of their subscriptions. And that's essentially still the model that we use. I mean... The structure or the nature of that contribution has changed so that for a while you had an ownership share and now you do now you don't and you know it, the the precise nature of those contributions change in terms of how they're how they are legally expressed uh, but the basic idea is to have a very broad base of supporters and to rely on that broad base rather than the the whim of one or two or three wealthy backers and I think that's that's been crucial. and But then you have to ask yourself, well, why is the nation able to do this? What is it about the nation that allows and encourages people to feel such a personal stake in it that in addition to paying a subscription, they'll still give a contribution? And I really think that comes down to two things. One is the nation's role as the venue for I hope, always civilized but certainly always spirited debate between liberals and radicals so that the nation is not the place where you go to see point-counterpoint. You know, it's not Fox News. It's not, like, on the left and on the right. But it is the place where liberals and radicals have argued with each other since the 1930s at least. And it's still, I think, the most important place where liberals and radicals argue with each other. And if you think, as I do, that for... that. any progress in America depends on liberals and radicals coming to decide that there are certain things they agree on, then the nation is crucial in that respect. And the other thing about it that I would say is that the nation doesn't flatter or lie to its readers, and it never has. So that even when the nation was reactionary, it told its readers what it believed to be true. And it's always been motivated by the view that if you tell people the truth, then they may change the world. Looking forward now, of course, we're in the digital age, a whole new age of
3: journalism. What do you think the nation's future holds? Will it last
2: another 150 years? Well, 150 years is a long, long, long time. But, but I think uh, the nation will last as long as it continues to tell the truth to its readers. And it will last as long as people turn to it for commentary and perspectives that they don't find in the mainstream media, so I think you know, in a way, uh, it would be lovely if if somebody would come along and do our jobs for us. But they never have, and they probably never will, because uh, you know, mainstream media relies on on corporate finance to continue and to survive and to operate. And if your worldview is one that's largely critical of the role of corporations in human life then you're not going to get backed by corporations. So there's always going to be a certain amount of self-censorship on the part of the mainstream media. And on the other hand, the non-mainstream media, you know, there's a kind of echo chamber or cacophony. And what, one of the things that surviving 150 years gives you is a record and credibility. So people know what they're getting in the nation. And I think as long as people want what they know they're going to get from us, the nation will survive.
3: Don Guttenplan, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today.
2: Pleasure.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Dee Guttenplan, author of The Nation, a Biography, The First 150 Years. The interviewer was Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. Special thanks to Chris Albertine of Vermont Public Radio for technical support. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.